Hello, I'm Brett Terpstra, and you're listening to Systematic. This week's guest is Dr. Steve Davis. He's a consultation liaison psychiatrist. Hi, Steve. Hey, Brett. Uh, thank you for uh, inviting me onto your show. Oh, absolutely. Uh, tell me what a, a consultation liaison psychiatrist does. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, so uh, a consultation liaison psychiatrist, uh, the, the words in that phrase essentially refer to psychiatrists who work in typically medical settings, um, often hospitals, emergency rooms, sometimes it might be nursing homes. Um, and uh, the focus is really, I've got somebody here with some sort of problem and I need a psychiatrist to uh, evaluate and see if they have a psychiatric problem that might be contributing. Or, uh, the person has psychiatric symptoms. We think it might be X, Y, Z, depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, uh, alcohol withdrawal. Um, but we we want a second opinion. So that's that's really what we do. We work in hospital settings generally, um, and that's where I spent most of my career, I guess, working in either hospital settings or other kind of primary care settings like uh, FQHC, federally qualified health center or primary care offices. Um, so that, uh, in essence, is what a, a CL psychiatrist uh, uh, does. Uh, I'm also uh, an addiction psychiatrist. Um, frankly, it's hard to do psychiatry without also doing addiction. Sure. Uh, sure. And I've done a lot of um, uh, work around addiction. In fact, I'm currently the, the president of the Maryland, D.C. Society of Addiction Medicine, which is a chapter of the larger national main addiction organization, which is ASAM or the American Society of Addiction Medicine. So you do a lot more um, uh, consultation than actual long-term seeing of patients, at least in your capacity as a consultation liaison then? Um, I, I had been. Um, my career has kind of um, oh, taken a winding path. <laughs> I, you know, I started off doing uh, actually, frankly, schizophrenia research way back in the day. Um, and uh, I wanted to go into uh, research uh, primarily because it, it that's what attracted me to psychiatry and medicine in the first place. I, um, uh, growing up, I had uh, um, uh, family members who developed schizophrenia at a young age in their teens, uh, which is oftentimes when it develops. And the uh, just to see, you know, these loved ones of mine transform with hallucinations and seeing numbers floating in the air. And it just kind of made me made, you know, I was younger than them. I was probably 11 or 12 and made me wonder, how does the brain do this weird stuff? Um, and I was kind of a geeky kid to begin with. Uh, so that just was something to focus on. And. Um, I've never let go of it. I mean, that's really what's driven my 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 career is how does how does it happen that the brain gets broken like that and how to fix it? Do you think it's uh, typical? For, it surprises me that you're still fascinated now by what you were fascinated by when you were 12. Yeah, well, <laughs> it reminds me of. Um, you know, so I so I went into uh, 
a kind of a research, research career. I actually started out as an MD PhD candidate. Um, and then, uh, uh, when I was driving around to, um, residencies, you know, you, you go to four years of medical school after college, four years of medical school, then internship and residency for psychiatry, which is for, uh, uh, typically four years. Um, and then maybe a fellowship or, or start your career. And as I was driving up to Dartmouth, um, in New Hampshire, um, for my interview on the radio, um, there was on NPR, a story about how they found the gene for schizophrenia. And, um, I remember kind of shouting, you know, in exclamation as I'm driving, um, oh, it's great. And then my next thought was, oh, well, I guess they solved that problem. Maybe I won't go into research. Um, as we know, it's never as simple as it seems. Uh, there are, you know, a bazillion genes that seem to uh, have something to do with uh, schizophrenia. And um, it remains, uh, mental health in general, um, remains, a, a, to me, a very interesting, challenging area. Um, although over the years, my interests have gone from research, you know, what causes it, how to treat it, um, to more mundane, but probably much more important things like, uh, we know what good care looks like. We sometimes don't know how to get it to people. Sure. We don't know how to get it to them, where to get it to them, how to make it affordable, how to make it, um, effective. So a big part of, um, psychiatry nowadays is often, uh, uh, implementation research, how to, get people the care that they need. It's a little sad um, that it is like that because we don't seem to have as much trouble getting diabetes treatment to sure. people and blood pressure treatment to people, uh, but it continues to be a problem. Do you think that, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the last couple of years about mental health, especially mental health in America. Do you feel like things are changing, uh, that there actually is more of a light being shined on those problems? I do. Um, you know, I, it's been something that's been changing, I think, over the years. But um, over the past, I would say, five, eight years or so, there seems to be an increasing recognition of the centrality of mental health. And by and when I say mental health, I mean like mental health and addiction. I, I, a lot of people split those two things separately. I think of them, many of us think of them as as together. It's all brain stuff. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the, uh, the the recognition that if you don't address those issues, then somebody's health, physical health suffers as well. And so you've got to do both. And if you don't do both, you're not going to do a good job. If you're just focused on physical health, like diabetes, you won't do a great job with that unless you've got the mental health stuff under control. So you talked about uh, uh, genes for schizophrenia, and I've over my life heard a lot about you know the various mental illnesses being passed on genetically. Has has that kind of research resulted in any um, actual therapies? I mean, does knowing that it's genetic help in treatment? Um, it, it, there, it's not a direct answer to that. Um, overall. You know, a blunt answer would be um, not greatly, uh, but uh, there's more nuanced answers. So, um, 
knowing the the target of the gene. So what does that gene do? You know, it, does it code for a, a certain neurotransmitter receptor or um, some other piece of the receptor if uh, ecosystem, um, if you will. Uh, so there are different things in the in in the neuron in the brain cells um, that either make neurotransmitters and neurotransmitters are generally the you know the messenger um, uh, the lingua franca if you franca mm -hmm. franca if Franca-a. you will yeah um, and uh, so knowing about what is broken you know if a, a gene has a, an error in its code um, that helps you understand well maybe we should design a drug or find a drug that targets that particular receptor and tries to work around the defect sure so it does it does help to define the the targets the uh, the drugs that uh, drug companies um, uh, think about and look for when they're trying to figure out okay what what else will work um, so that, that does drive um, those those types of genetics do drive some of the research, but there's still I think a lot more that we don't know than there is that we do know. So what's uh, what's new and exciting in the field of addiction and psychiatry? Um, so those those things um, certainly, as I said, go together um, and. Uh, what's new is is what's really old, unfortunately. So um, we talk about whole person care, um, you know, uh, whether it be physical, uh, mental, uh, addiction, uh, but there continues to be a lot of separation between those three things and even between addiction and psychiatry. So some of the new stuff is... Uh, finding models of care that knit these things together in a way that where you can get treatment for both types of conditions, a uh, mental health condition and a addiction condition, and ideally even your physical health all in one place. That's the big, um, the, the big thing right now is putting all that together uh, so that there are not these silos or, or wrong doors. It used to be, and it still is sometimes, where you might go to a, your doctor or to a mental health clinic and say, oh, I've got this problem with uh, opioid use. You know, I want to, I want to, some, I want to have that taken care of, um, and be told, oh, well, we don't do that here. You got to go somewhere else, uh, which is pretty frustrating. Um, same with if you go to your primary care doctor and you want help for depression, and she says. Um, Oh, I don't treat depression. Uh, you have to go to somebody else. Um, so, trying to uh, put these things together so that you can get your treatment for all your conditions from one place, and they can bring in specialists when needed. Um, uh, that's a unfortunately that's kind of a new thing, um, relatively new. But people are starting to pay for it. That's the key. Is um, insurance companies, uh, Medicare. It wasn't too long ago that Medicare um, did not cover uh, treatment for mental illness more than, you know, a small amount, 20 yeah. visits a year or something like that. Uh, and then they didn't put limits on other, you know, conditions uh, that that has gotten better. Yeah. So uh, so these are, th these are new things. Um, you know, there's always some new 
medications. Uh, there are some sexy things I, I would call that sexy, I guess. Some um, new interventions like uh, TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's been around a while, but it's still it's newer compared to other treatments. But it's a non-medication form of treating various conditions. It's approved for treating uh, treatment-resistant depression, so depression that doesn't respond to medications after you know a decent trial. Uh, and um, TMS involves essentially a big electromagnet that gets essentially held over your 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 head, your scalp, in a certain type of position, um, positioned in a way that uh, there are deep, narrow beams of magnetic energy uh, that in a focused way, try to go to parts of the brain that are involved in depression um, and, um, uh, I, I don't know, uh, zap them, if you will. You're not killing anything. It's just you're sending a magnetic pulse that causes a current flow, um, an electrochemical current flow. And we don't know exactly why that helps. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of theories and so forth, but um, it's a bit of a, oh, you know, um, th there's a far side uh, cartoon with a woolly mammoth laying dead on its back. And there's a single arrow like in his stomach somewhere. And I think the caveman says something like, let's write down where that spot is. <laughs> um, it's sort of like that. There's a, uh, but, yeah, go ahead. There's like a whole pseudoscience around magnets, which I feel like uh, having actual clinical uses for magnets is only going to lend strength to this craziness with all these magnet, uh, like necklaces you're supposed to be able to buy and they'll fix your life. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So there, there's some good research to show that these strong, um, uh, electromagnets, um, do something, but these are strong. Like if you, if you turn on the magnet and you've got uh, something metallic uh, um, uh, near you, it can it can hurt you. It'll suck I mean, your fillings it can fling out. across the room. This is a a, a serious um, uh, uh, type of uh, electromagnet um, that costs. You can buy these machines, these transcranial magnetic stimulation machines. They cost about I guess a hundred thousand um, dollars, and it's not something that um, you buy and keep it in your house next to your treadmill, right? Uh, but, um, uh, there's certainly plenty of psychiatrists that are using it and it's pretty effective. It re does require though, um, daily treatment about five, de five days a week. Um, you know, for most forms of it, there's a couple of different forms, forms of magnets now, but the most common one, uh, you're getting this treatment for about 35, 40 minutes, five times a week for about six weeks. That seems to be the dosage that um, makes a difference, but I have definitely seen people who have not responded to your usual types of treatment um, who do respond to this. It's not a magic bullet. Uh, it's about a mm, 30, 40% or so response rate. That's but if you're good. in that 30 or 40%, you're gonna be pretty happy that it works if it does. Yeah, okay. Uh, let me take a quick break to tell you about one of my favorite apps and a sponsor of today's show. This episode of Systematic is brought to you by Text Expander. Work smarter, not harder with Text Expander. Text Expander is an app that works on all of your devices, expanding short abbreviations into full text snippets. It's an app I honestly wouldn't want to live without on my Mac and iPhone, and it's also available for Windows and as a web app. 
Text Expander helps you work faster and smarter so you can focus your time on your most important work. With just a few keystrokes, Text Expander keeps you consistent, accurate, and working efficiently. Using Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations can streamline and speed up everything you type, and it helps you get your message right every time. Expand content that corrects your spelling, keeps your language consistent with just a few keystrokes. Systematic listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more. So I'll, I'm going to offer some background before I ask this. Um, like I, in uh, in my late teens, early 20s, was addicted to all kinds of things, um, like to the point of homelessness. And mm-hmm. when I got uh, diagnosed for bipolar in my 20s, Uh, that wasn't the turning point, but at the same time, like as part of getting my life together, I started going to NA and I found that, um, mentioning my addictions to my primary care physician led to, uh, bad things happening to my care, uh, mentioning or trying to treat, uh, addiction via my psychiatrist was, she would just refer me to he at the time would just refer me to NA like they didn't want it. They didn't have any solutions for me. It all had to go through 12 step programs. So what I'm Mm -hmm. really curious about is this is 15, 20 years ago. Uh, What would there be help for me now if I were in a position uh, that if I were actively abusing drugs or was recently clean would psychiatry have new answers for me? They would have better answers. Um, some of the some of them are new. Some of the answers are new. Twelve uh, step programs, you know, uh, those those started back in the 1930s um, by you know a couple of guys. Uh, I'm sure you know the story, um, and really focused on on alcoholism um, and um, that sort of uh, social support. Um, and there are a number of factors, I think, that that make that helpful. But um, there are treatments that are more effective even than, say, 12-step. Um, so, for example, as we learn more about the biology of addiction, which is actually pretty well mapped out, um, what you learn is that there are types of treatments, either some of which are medications, some of which are more... Some people will call them psychosocial treatments, um, like uh, motivational enhancement um, therapy. Um, There are um, the the medications for it, though, I I think are pretty helpful. You know, this is the United States. Everybody wants to take a pill to fix a problem. Um, And um, we look for those things, but for some types of addiction, we, you know, there are medications that have been shown to be effective, more effective than placebo, at least. Um, and um, an example of that would be for for alcohol. The, the main medicine for many years was um, disulfiram or antabuse. Yeah. And, you know, that's a medication that mucks up your liver's ability to break down alcohol and kind of blocks the pathway so that a certain chemical builds up and makes you really sick. Yeah. I mean, makes you feel lousy, vomit and so forth. 
Um, and uh, that was more of an aversive type of positive you know, punishment. Of yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've, I've used that some. Um, it's not the most popular, as you can, as you might imagine. But I've had people tell me that um, without that, they wouldn't have been able to stop. Um, but even that is kind of, I would say, fallen more out of favor um, for, uh, you know, other substances like other medications. Uh, now, Trexone is a good one. Um, now, Trexone um, also goes by the name of Revia or Vivitrol. Um, it is a opioid antagonist, so it blocks the opioid receptor. Um, and in so doing, um, if you were to take you know, like oxycodone or heroin, um, it wouldn't have much of an effect because you're blocking that receptor and and the, the opioid that you took would not be able to bind and do its thing. Um, so ha- taking a medication that blocks that um, also helps with alcoholism because when you drink, your body releases, you know, your own internal um, opioids, the endorphins that you've probably heard of. Um, and those endorphins make you feel good about drinking, at least early on. Um, and so by blocking those receptors, then when you drink, you don't get quite the same feel good out of it. You don't get the same buzz out of it. And because you remove that kind of reward, then um, you develop a habit of, eh, you know, I don't care so much about the drinking. That's the thinking behind it. And it seems to work, but it doesn't work for, for everyone. So like the, the thing that got me was I could get off of any given drug and I could go completely clean and sober, but my addictive behavior would show up in completely non-drug related areas of my life, like uh, obsessions and un- unhealthy behaviors uh, that had nothing to do with, you know, sticking needles in my arm anymore. Or, or even like drinking, like completely non-drug related. Uh, mm-hmm. And it seems like all of those treatments that you just mentioned were very much about the physical, about turning off like pleasure centers. Is there, is there anything new in the area of actually uh, treating the, uh, not the chemical dependency, but the addiction? Um, yeah, so, you know, addiction is sort of a, a cycle. And in fact, if you look at the, the, the um, reward systems in the brain, you'll see it actually looks like a, a circuit, um, you know, a, kind of a three-way circuit, if you will. And so the trick to treating and stopping addictions is to block that circuit because it's this pathological feedback loop. Um, that just kind of spins and spins and spins. And you've got to do things to block it. So some of the things that people do would be to uh, use a medication to block that cycle. But there are non-medication ways to block those cycles. So um, learning um, essentially how to uh, change your behaviors. You know, uh, you, you can learn, as I'm sure you already have, you've probably learned that there are certain things that if you if you do those things, they might be more likely to facilitate uh, escalation of an addiction. Yeah. Um, you know, and for some people, that's uh, 
uh, going to a bar and hanging out with their friends. Oh no, I won't drink. I won't drink. I'm just going to sit here, sit here in the bar and, and be with my friends. Well, you know, um, our brain associates senses, things, um, seeing, seeing the uh, people drinking, uh, hearing the clinking of glasses. Um, back in the day, when people smoked in bars, this, this, you know, cigarette smoke, all these sorts of cues. And these cues um, train your brain to go, ah, I want the thing, the, the feel-good thing that's associated with those cues. So just learning how to block that cycle by avoiding those cues and, um, you know, a big part of the problem sometimes is just teaching people how to identify those cues in the first place. Sure. Uh, you you probably hear of, uh, you know, in 12 step, they talk about people, places, and things. Yep. These are yep. all, um, you know, things that you associate with, with using or with feeling good while you're using substances. Um, and those things require changing, um, to, uh, break, break that cycle. So it is a combination of, you know, the, the best treatments probably try to hit that cycle pattern in multiple different ways. You know, uh, like, uh, uh, let's say for opioid use disorder, um, uh, buprenorphine, suboxone, that is a medication that uh, is an opioid itself, um, but it is uh, so seems to be associated with less um, uh, less of a reward feeling from it. Um, it has a bit of a ceiling effect, so you can't like take more and more and um, feel better and better. Oh, I, it, that reminds me that um, the other thing that the brain is really good about, uh, although sometimes that good can be bad, is um, if it starts to see, um, experience uh, a, let's say, um, you know, some sort of opioid, on an ongoing basis, well, your your brain already makes its own endorphins, um, but if you're su supplementing that on a regular daily basis, then your brain starts to go, oh, I don't need to make those endorphins anymore, right? Because I'm just getting too much as it is, so I'm going to stop that. Well, if you were to then stop using your opioid, it takes a little bit of time for your brain to kick in and go up. Oh, I see I'm not getting any of that anymore. I better start making more of those endorphins. Um, and then you're going to have a deficit of those endorphins. And when that happens, that can be an uncomfortable feeling. Uh, the other thing that your brain will do is uh, because the the endorphins or the heroin or the opioid that you take um, uh, does its thing by binding to receptors, the other thing that the, that the brain is really good at is going, mm, I'm getting too much of these opioids. I'm going to make less receptors. So that way I'm not getting stimulated so much. Uh, it's too much hyperstimulation. So I'm going to tone down those receptors and make fewer of them. Well, that's fine as long as your dosage of opioids always stays the same. Um, and, but what will happen is if you're making fewer receptors and then you take away the opioids, it takes about two weeks to make new receptors. So that means for two weeks, you're going to have, you're going to, your brain's going to be starving for what it's used to getting. Yeah. Been and there. that's what people <laughs> go through withdrawal and, you know, shakes and tremors. And um, it's a very extreme, you know, vomiting, a, a very uncomfortable feeling, which is why if you've experienced, you'll know that um, 
people will do just about anything to bo- avoid feeling that bad. Yep. And that's that cycle of addiction that gets you, you know, the brain, the opioid is really hijacking your brain and its own regulatory processes uh, and doing it in a way that you've lost control. Once you get to that point, it's really hard to to regain control. Some people are able to do that um, without a lot of intervention. I think those people are far and few between. Um, others need more help. Um, and still others just never quite get to the point where they get the help. I've seen people who are, you know, using opioids off the street for you know, 30, 40 years or so. A big problem nowadays, of course, is that we have a toxic drug supply. Yeah. Um, with the fentanyl that's out there, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's fentanyl super strong. It is easy to a small amount. It's easy to get in to the country from different places. Um, and, uh, if you're in the business of, uh, of being a street dealer and selling, um, opioids, usually it's heroin. Most of the heroin that's sold on the street now has no heroin in it. It's fentanyl and then a bunch of like sugar and other white stuff. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad I got out when I did, I guess. But uh so you you I don't mean to stick on this topic forever, but you t- you talked about opioid disorder um and the way that it was always presented to me mostly through 12 steps is that there aren't different kinds of addiction, it's all just addiction. Are there different are there different kind of uh brain patterns between different types of drug users? Um, more, I, I'm not a, an expert on, on the, the fine points of, you know, the, the brain's reward system with respect to different types of addictions. But, but I, I do know that, um, those addictions are much, much more alike than they are different. Yeah. There may be some differences, like for example, cocaine addiction, um, is much more focused on the dopamine reward system as opposed to the um, endorphin, the opioid receptor system. Um, So there might be some subtle differences, but much more alike than they are different. Absolutely. Uh, And that goes with other types of addiction too. People have sexual addictions, Um, some people gambling. Um, There's a lot lot more similarity there than there are differences. I cured my cocaine addiction by starting to use heroin. Um, I feel like I'm (laughs) well-versed. Well, it, it, and, and so that is very old school because back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that's exactly what people did. Really? You came in with cocaine addiction, we will treat it with heroin. You come in with heroin addiction, we might treat it with cocaine um, or cannabis or, you know, um, you know, if you go back far enough, they were using all sorts of things, um, uh, lead, for example, or... I think maybe I want to say arsenic was also used sometimes. So, uh, of course that those were the, there were days when I guess it was, uh, leeches and all sorts of weird things. Humors. Yeah. Um, so how has, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to try to get off my, uh, my obsession (laughs) with the addiction thing. How has, uh, how has COVID affected your, your life, your daily job? Uh, for for me um, uh, personally, I mean, it, it certainly it's disrupted the whole country, the, the whole planet, um, in in various different ways. Um, you know, the work that I do uh, right now, I'm not 
doing direct care. Um, I, uh, I guess in December of 2019, I started working for um, an insurance company, Optum. I've never worked for a payer before, um, but they had a contract to do uh, take care of uh, people with behavioral health problems um, in Maryland who are uh, who have Medicaid. And um, I, you know, I'm a sort of person that I like to know how things work underneath the infrastructure, the gears that make everything turn, which is probably what attracted me to psychiatry and to uh, research initially. Um, but that's true with all sorts of systems. I like to know what makes everything um, uh, tick. And we've got a lot of problems in our healthcare system, um, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> and some of those problems, you know, aside from COVID, um, just again, the whole um, how to implement uh, uh, treatment to people and get those those services, um, you know, available to them. Um, that whole system just isn't working well here. So. I decided, well, let me, you know, the job opportunity came up to um, to work on the payer side. And I think a big part of it is how health care is financed and paid for and the incentives therein. Um, so I wanted to take this job to learn what's going on on the payer side. How does that work? Because I had my my vision. I've, I, I've cursed out insurance companies for enough enough of my career that I decided, well, let's see if I can figure out what's broken on that side. Um, and uh, so I can do my work uh, remotely. Um, you know, I was driving to work um, every day. Uh, yeah, March 16th, I think, was the last day last year and haven't been back uh, since other than maybe sometime in the summer I went and got some some things there. You know, when we left, we didn't we didn't know that we would be gone for a year. Sure. Uh, so um I'm able to do my work remotely at home, so I'm blessed that uh, that, that I can do that. There are a lot of jobs where people cannot, um, but the impact on people has certainly taken a toll. Obviously, there's the physical toll if you get COVID, but um, a lot more depression and anxiety uh, we're certainly seeing during COVID. Um, uh, addiction and use of substances has gone up. Sure. Um, you know, it's like, well, some people have a lot of time on their hands. Um, others are self-treating, maybe. Uh, the rate of alcohol consumption has gone up tremendously. Um, and so that has had, you know, a very significant impact. I think just the loneliness, there's a lot of people that are lonely, a lot of social disruption. Um, obviously, all the other negative consequences of COVID, financial problems, loss of jobs, um, you know, kids in school, um, people going to college and kind of uncertainty about all those things, uh, losing friends and family to COVID, uh, sure. people that, that have died. Um, so these are a lot of um, uh, consequences that are hitting us um, kind of in, in, in the brain, if you will. Um, I think uh, you know some groups are hit harder than others. Uh, indigenous people, people of color, uh, people that don't have access to uh, broadband. Um, you know, uh, it used to be before COVID that you could not provide treatment just over a regular phone, right? Um, and get paid for it. Uh, and that changed with COVID, and 
we're still trying to figure out, are we going to keep that change? Uh, you know, I would argue that we should. There are lots of people that even without COVID um, have limited access to treatment. If you're working three jobs uh, just to keep um, your family uh, fed pre-COVID, um, you don't have a lot of time to take three buses to get to the doctor's office for your regular you know, medical checkup. Um, and so having other ways to do that, um, ways that are more convenient, um, uh, I hopefully will go a long way. It certainly seems it certainly seems that way. Um, so we're we're it's it's odd though that something so terrible has caused such positive changes in our healthcare system. It shouldn't have to take that, but it did. Yeah. What, do you think that uh, as things quote unquote head back to normal? Uh, that there will be, uh, w will the will the things we've learned and the advances we've made in medical care uh, move forward, or will they revert? Your prediction? I I predict it's going to be hard to put that genie back in the bottle. Uh, so I think that the tele the, all the telehealth um, advances that we've made, um, I think most of them will stay with us. I think that um, we will see much more, we're seeing it now, um, uh, digital therapeutics, uh, different words for it, but essentially using technology um, and uh, data population health concepts, um, using those sorts of tools to uh, get help to people, identify who needs help, um, make them available. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. In COVID, we've had to We've had to change gears. Um, otherwise, there's no way to uh, get people the help. Um, I, I think it will be overall positive changes. I sure hope that we'll see a reduction in the cost of care. You know, uh, our country spends you know two to three times more than any other country does uh, per person on healthcare, and a lot of that goes to you know, well, some of it at least goes to like administrative costs and so forth. There's a lot of overhead. Um, and it's long been argued that we spend, you know, for what we're getting, we're spending way too much. Um, but it's been hard to figure out, okay, well, where are you going to cut without losing quality, without right. losing access to care? We're, we're kind of forced to figure that out now. Yeah. All right. So last question before we get to uh, some top three picks. Uh, I assume that as a, a practicing psychiatrist, you take a lot of notes. What is your favorite way of taking notes? Uh, for, I don't know how long it's been. Um, so you, your product, uh, NVALT, uh, actually I used notational velocity before. Uh, I um, want to be clear, this was not me fishing <laughs> <laughs> I know, but 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 uh, <laughs> you're you're going to get the fish anyway. Um, you know, uh, I use that every day. That is my main note taking tool. Um, you know, so I use mark. I you know type in markdown. Um, so I use a lot of you know asterisk and other um, uh, markdown tools because it just makes a lot of sense um, to me and. Uh, uh, what I but what I really like about it is that um, you know I've developed kind of a workflow for note taking, um, and uh, that workflow has certainly evolved over the years. But 
having some kind of tool that allows me to immediately um, find all the notes that have certain words or phrases in it um, is uh, incredibly helpful, um, as well as having a tool that allows me to hyperlink between notes to connect those threads. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the concept of uh, Zettelkasten uh, is something I certainly read uh, a fair amount about and learned, you know, picked up some tips about um, how to write notes in a way, you know, back in uh, medical school. So here's a, uh, you know, you've talked about your, um, uh, your ADHD. Yeah. And how that has affected your life. <laughs> um, so, you know, I have been diagnosed with ADHD as well. Um, I'm not taking any medications for that now. Uh, but uh, I have had, you know, uh, I've been a kind of a, a high performing kid um, and never, at least in high school and college, didn't really need to work too hard. I'm not trying to brag. It's just kind of how I found it to be. Um, I nearly flunked out of medical school uh, because of because of this. The in in the first year of medical school, I used the same poor study habits that I had in college. You know, which was um, a lot of last minute cramming, um, uh, procrastination. Um, uh, you know, being in a lecture, listening. I learned a lot from that. Um, reading. Um, I, you know, I would sometimes get into it, but I, it was just very easy to get distracted. Yeah. And so I had poor study habits. Um, and in medical school, your first year, you're, you're like, you know, a typical, uh, semester in college is like, um, 15 credits, five classes, right. Right. Um, uh, three hours a week. And in medical school, instead of taking like five classes, it's more like taking 20 classes um, all at once, all through the same time. Um, and I used the same techniques I, I used in college and that failed me terribly. Um, and I started to do poorly and it really took, um, uh, you know, kind of, uh, okay, either figure it out or you're out of here before I finally said to myself, okay, I'm doing something wrong. I've got to change. I've got to do something. Um, and at that time, I wasn't thinking it was um, it was um, ADHD or anything like that. I just thought I had, you know, uh, bad habits, bad study habits. I just needed to try harder, try harder. Sure. And so that's what I did. I tried harder, tried harder, um, and and that did work. I mean, I, I but it meant that I always had a book in my hand. I was always writing notes. I wasn't typing notes back then. I was, everything sure, was sure. handwritten, a lot of highlighting and so forth. And I just overdid all of that stuff um, just to, uh, you know, finally um, uh, succeed. But I was, a, but I was able to. Um, and and after I, but but I had to do some sort of mental gear shifting. And I can't even. It's hard for me to even define what that was. But that's what it. But that's what it took. Um, and. Uh, you know, I have tried, um, uh, myself, a few of the medications that are used to treat, um, ADHD, um, at, at times in my life when, um, I thought, well, mm, maybe that would help. Um, it, it did help, but I did not like how it made me feel. I felt very speedy kind of wired, um, feeling on stimulants. Um, 
you know, I, I tried uh, some other medications like uh, uh, Welbutrin or Bupropion, um, Effexor, which is venlafaxine, yeah. which are sometimes used to treat these conditions. And um, they gave me kind of odd side effects that I didn't like. So, you know, after, you know, I tried a couple of years, different medicines, but I just didn't find that I was too, uh, too helpful. Um, tell me about, you know, your experience with those types of medicines and side effects. This is really funny because the question was about notes, but I'm happy to talk about <laughs> this. Um, so like as a, a former cocaine and at some point meth addict, uh, the idea of feeling speedy wasn't, I, I'm not averse to that. Um, <laughs> I definitely, I, uh, I was on a med called Vivance for a long time and Vivance did not give me that speedy feeling, but it also wasn't terribly effective. Um, mm -hmm. the, the drug that has been the most useful to me is Focalin, which is mm -hmm. closer to, uh, uh, Ritalin. Vivance is in the Adderall family. Um, so like I don't function without, uh, ADHD medication. And part of it is, uh, it's combined with bipolar depression. Um, I just, plus when I'm not medicated for ADHD, my addictive tendencies, uh, I, I have lower impulse control. So that leads to just general problems, even if it's not drug abuse, it's just addiction in general. Um, so I, I've been willing to accept the kind of physical side effects of ADHD medication because they allow me to function the way I see everyone else functioning. Mm -hmm. Which is well, nice. the, yeah. Um, so the the connection to me with the note taking is that I find that, um, like I did back in medical school, by focusing on the process of making notes, writing notes, typing notes, um, that that becomes almost like a focus for me yes and helps me pay attention more and improves my memory because if i write something down if i'm typing something um um especially if i use it soon afterwards yeah um i find that i remember it better and that was one of the tricks that i learned in medical school was just by doing more of this kind of note-taking highlighting make things yellow and pink and so forth um it it, it for me, it kind of built a bit of a mental uh, map, like a geographical map almost, and it helped me, like I, I could envision a page and where certain words were on the page. And that somehow helped me, helped me remember um, uh, what it was I was trying to learn. Um, and so using those types of, these types of uh, tools like, you know, uh, like Envy Alt, for example. And by the way, Okay, I'm gonna uh, NV Ultra, which is like your how I don't know uh, how you would describe it, but um, is that something that's going to be coming out? I should hope so. It <laughs> so I mean, basically, right now, uh, Fletcher, my partner on this, yeah. is uh, he's going through a lot of stuff that is not related to NV Ultra, uh, in addition to being an ER doctor in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so things are moving slowly, but we are absolutely like on the precipice of release. Uh, I just need him to find a little more time 
and uh, and we'll get that out there. We are pretty much anyone who directly asks me to be on the beta at this point. We're not mass adding anybody, but you and anyone else listening who wants to be on the beta, just email me, and we'll get you up and running with NV Ultra. Well, that's cool. The, the The name is funny because it makes me think of a certain CIA operation. I know MK Ultra. It's we we the, it was supposed to be a code name. It was just supposed to be a temporary NVL NVUltra wordplay yes. code name. We never found a better name for it, or okay. I should say, we never agreed on a better name for it. I thought I had some great ideas. He thought he had some great ideas. We couldn't we couldn't come to a two person consensus. Cool. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, that, that is something I've been, in fact, I've, I've dallied with a couple of things. Um, uh, I thought, I thought Rome was going to, um, kind of fit the bill, but, um, I, I haven't found that to, I got very frustrated with it and, um, it hasn't been easy to use. Uh, and I think they, they're not using text-based notes. Um, you can't just save a right, bunch of They're not actual files. files. It's database. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, the, the whole idea of getting something, you know, I've gone through, I don't know how many computers, um, in, in my, in my life so far, but, um, uh, you know, to have things on in formats that down the road, uh, I won't be able to access is just not something I'm willing to accept. Yeah. That is very much the philosophy behind notational velocity and VLT and VLTRA is this, this idea of portable, portable notes. In regards to what you were saying before, I have 100% found that if I take notes on something while it's happening, I rarely even need to go look at my notes because just the act of taking the note helps me remember what happened. Exactly. I find I find the same thing um, as well. Uh, and uh, in fact, I sometimes will, uh, like I'll, I might be listening to um, a podcast um, and somebody's talking about something and I'll pause it and go, you know, do what I need to do so that I can take some notes about it. Because just listening about it, um, you know, I'll hear it and I'll think, oh, I, I want to check that out later. But if I don't write it down, it's out of sight, out of mind, and it's gone before you know it. So I've got to stop and do something to capture it. And just that capture is almost like taking a picture. And then I have it. Do you use mind maps at all? I've tried to mess with mind maps a number of times. Um, I can't get into it. I, I don't know why, but it, cause you would think from some of the things I've said that, uh, um, it, that would, um, work well, although most of the mind maps I've done have been, um, you know, like on a computer rather than yeah. on a piece of paper, I've done it on a piece of paper and, and I get frustrated cause I run out of room. Sure. Yeah. Tony, Tony Bizan was a huge proponent of like, you have to do it on paper up until, uh, probably the mid two thousands, but like I've never enjoyed doing it on paper because I like to be able to move things around. That's part of the magic for me yeah, is exactly. as I kind of like jot down these notes and dump out ideas and, and, and concepts that are coming up. I just, I, I can just dump them onto the screen and then I can organize them and then I can start to make the connections and see what relates to what. And like, it's perfect for me. It, and it's very much, uh, it's a there are two kinds of people there are people who mind map and people who don't and for some people like i i would never push mind mapping on anybody because it just doesn't seem to click for some people the way it clicks for me mm -hmm. yeah yeah all right well, uh, 
I'm 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 conscious of the time and uh, top three picks. Yes. Let me do a quick sponsor break. You got it. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after speaking with them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. By cutting out retail stores, there's no crazy overhead costs that get passed down to you in the form of mystery fees. Instead, Mint just passes sweet savings direct to you. I'm saving enough every month to more than offset the cost of the fancy coffee I like to drink, and that's significant. I always thought my wireless bill was just another expense I had to work around, but it turns out that I can pay 15 bucks a month instead of almost 100 for the same service. All plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same number along with all of your existing contacts. It works perfectly with the iPhone I got through Verizon, and you can check online to see if your phone is supported. If you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with a 7-day money-back guarantee. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just $15 a month. So, to get your new wireless plan for $15 a month and get the plan shipped free to your door, go to mintmobile.com systematic. That's mintmobile.com systematic. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash systematic. All right. So now top three picks. Tell me what you got. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it changes every time I think about it. <laughs> uh, so the first thing I, I thought of um, is something I keep coming to. So I do uh, photography. I'm a hobbyist, um, but um, uh, really enjoy um, photography, mostly landscape, um, nature, um, you know, some street photography. And, uh, I came across, um, a book by photographer David Lubbers. Um, and the book is called persistence of vision. You can, if you just Google it, you'll find some, some of the pictures, um, um, out there. And what he did in this book was, he found he's a you know a professional photographer. He he makes his living doing photography, and um, he went through his photographs and he found uh, you know dyads of photographs, two photographs. The technical word for this is diptych. Yeah. Um, and uh, put them uh, one on the left and one on the right. So each time you flip a page, you've got a new set, a new pair of photos, and the one on the left and one on the right. Um, what he does is um, matches photos that have elements that are very similar, but they're different photos. They're like from different times, like different years, uh, different locations. Um, but there might be, for example, on the left, there might be an S curve of a stream. And on the right, there might be the same exact location and everything, S curve, but of sand. Um, in a desert. Nice. Um, and it's a series of these pictures. And what I really like about it is that he doesn't tell you what's the same. So this is really something that the observer, the reader is looking at and noticing, oh, 
oh, look, there's a rock over here and there's that same type of rock over here. And, um, it, you know, it, it, it makes you think. Um, and it makes me think I've got, I don't know, probably 30,000 photographs um, all on all on backed up hard drive. So I don't lose them. Um, uh, but this concept of finding photos that are similar um, and tell a bit of a story is just fascinating to, to me. So I've started to try to do something like that myself. So um, uh, any photographers out there, um, I would suggest take a look at his book. Nice. Um, it's kind of like those, uh, those funny pages spot the difference between the two photos, but opposite. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, remember going to the dentist and reading highlights? Yes, of course. Well, th there were some things in highlights like that, where you're trying to yep. find what's changed. Yep. Yep. All um, right. a, okay. A second thing, um, is, uh, something kind of more general, uh, the internet archive the Wayback Machine, yes. and all the other things that are associated with that. Um, you know, just in the past week, um, I went in there to, you know, I, me and two other psychiatrists did a podcast for several years called My Three Shrinks. And I think we've got about 70 um, episodes. Uh, we haven't done them for a number of years, but uh, I had, you know, I didn't um, renew the um the domain and then all the files went away and where are my files? Well, they're on some hard drive somewhere. Well, it turns out um, uh, way back, caught them all, including the audio files. Um, and um, I, uh, I'll i share a link with you uh, so that readers, if they want to listen to any of them, they can. But that got me digging deeper into what is on the internet archive um, and uh, some of the, you know, so during COVID, um, there were, they've really doubled down on, um, get making more books available, um, through, uh, the archive. And so there's a lot more, um, uh, uh, books. I think there's, you know, there's obviously it backs up web pages like you know, nobody's business. I think there's like a half a trillion web pages on there that are all searchable through keyword searching and so forth. Um, and uh, lots of audio recordings, music, spoken word, sound effects, uh, podcasts, uh, videos too. There's old, you know, movies and and, and things like that. Um, there's just so much there, um, and it's a uh, it's truly a treasure trove. Uh, and if if people don't know um, about it, um, uh, you know, we'll, you'll put a link in the show notes. Um, uh, to that, but, uh, there's just amazing stuff in, in the internet archive. So, um, that definitely deserves a, a strong mention. Absolutely. I, uh, when I first, this, this podcast started on the five by five network and not to malign anybody, but, uh, within a week of me moving to a different network, uh, the first hundred some episodes were just gone from the internet removed. And, uh, I went back a couple years later and realized that they were all in the Wayback Machine and I was able to retrieve. So the the website's current pod, uh, podcast, current website at uh, system, what is it? Systematicpod.com now has like the full archive and it's only possible because of the Wayback Machine. It saved our podcast too. Um, really, really, uh, you know, really amazing that that's there. Um, and uh uh, just awesome. And, and lots of, um, 
I, you know, like for example, they, I think there's, they've got, um, several million books, uh, a lot of sci-fi. Um, although it's curious they had, so I looked at for Isaac Asimov, right. Um, at least a hundred of his books are in there. Hein, uh, Robert Heinlein, none. Huh. Why is that? I don't know. Uh, so it's got some quirkiness to it. Um, but, uh, uh, very useful. And I think I also found, did I find that there? I think I did. Um, our, you know, so the two psychiatrists I mentioned, um, uh, Dinah Miller and Ann Hansen, we also, you know, we, we had a, a blog, which we no longer write for, uh, which was called shrink wrap. Um, and then came the podcast of my three shrinks. You see a theme here. And then, you know, Dinah had this great idea. Well, let's take the, the, the hundreds and hundreds of blog posts that we did and make a book out of it. Um, and, uh, if you ever try to do something like that, it doesn't work the way you think it would. Right. She thought, Oh, you just stitch, stitch them all together and it'd be fine. No. Uh, and three of us, you know, um, arguing about, okay. Uh, writing w what we're going to put in, what we don't put in, but that book is, um, also, um, in the Wayback machine. So, if you wanted to buy, it's still, I think it's still, um, there's some still print copies that are um, um, out there. Uh, it came out in 2011, uh, but I was very pleased to see that it's also right there, um, you know, uh, in the Wayback Machine. Well, it's actually not even part of the Wayback Machine. It's part of openlibrary.org. Um, and uh, they allow you to borrow a book for an hour. So it's really interesting to see that the three that even on the internet in the Wayback Machine, psychiatrists, um, you know, are doing their thing one hour at a time. <laughs> I had to reach for that one. Sorry. <laughs> All right. What's number three? Uh, number three is Sonic Pi. Do you use? Do you're a musician. Have you used Sonic Pi? I, I have not. Is Pi uh, P I or P I E? P I. Yeah, it's not Python. It's Pi. Uh, like the Greek letter. Yeah. Sonic PI. Um, it is a, uh, a, a downloadable executable, um, that, uh, uh, allows you to, um, make music by coding. So you're, you're essentially, um, writing code that, um, uh, spits out music. And as you tweak the code, the music changes. Cool. Um, if you've ever used like, um, uh, like a Jupyter notebook. It's something like that in the sense that by changing it, it, uh, the output immediately, um, um, comes out. And, uh, the, I think the guy that, that, that wrote it is Sam Aaron, I think is his name. And he's got a number of, um, YouTube videos of him, you know, jamming with his computer, uh, music, people dancing and so forth. Um, and you know, what I like about it is that it, you know you're using code and mathematics to uh, write to make sounds, and um, there are some folks who have used Sonic Pi to turn data into sound, uh, and that concept just fascinates me. I haven't quite figured out what to do with that <laughs> fascination, but it's just asking for something. Uh, check it, check it out. I'd, Love to, um, I'll bet that you'll get turned on by this and, um, want to do something. Yeah. I'm worried. I'm worried that you just killed between one and a hundred hours of my productivity. Well, that's why I got into it one weekend and, and, um, haven't been back to it yet. 
because it it's hard to stop once you start. Um, there's uh, on the um, are you familiar with the Calm app? Yes. So in that, I there's a um, I found a segment of um, there's an astrophysicist by the name of Matt Russo who took uh, kind of the uh, data of the stars and when they come out at night, so when they become visible as dusk settles to night, um, and um, took the, a file with all of the star information and the intensity and the color, yeah. um, and um, when they come out, you know, kind of as as it gets darker and darker and darker, and created um, essentially there, there's one of the sound system sounds I think it's called in the call map is that recording. And so for an hour, it starts off with a little bing, bung, bing, <laughs> as stars become um, visible. Yeah. And then over the course of an hour, it becomes kind of this raucous white noise sound. Um, but as it's, as it's unfolding, it just has a very calm, soothing feel to it. And so, you know, taking data and making sound and music out of it, I love that that concept. I just want to do something with it. Awesome. I'll have to. I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. I'm absolutely going to play with that. Yeah, yeah. You, you, it hard. It's hard not to once you start messing with it. All right. Well, if people want to uh, learn more about you or reach you, where can they look for you? Um. Ooh, probably the best way. The best places are. Um. Uh, I'm so I'm on LinkedIn. I'll put a, a a link in the show notes for for my LinkedIn page, um, and um, on Twitter I'm hit shrink. Those are the best two places. All right, cool. Well, thanks for your time today. Really great to uh, to have this extended conversation with probably one of my favorite software artists. So thank <laughs> you. Thanks for putting up with my uh, my my addiction obsession in the uh, in the questions. <laughs> my my pleasure uh, some things you want to feed all right and thanks everyone for listening we'll see you again in a week hey thanks for tuning in to systematic check out more episodes at systematicpod.com and subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify or your favorite podcast app find me as tt scoff on all social platforms and follow systematic at systemcast s-y-s-t-m-c-a-s-t on twitter thanks for listening